to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing the deepening economic crisis here in the United States. Also going to be talking about uh, Nancy Pelosi's possible trip to Taiwan and the issues that that could create. Also going to be marking the anniversary of the Korean War armistice. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, a few months ago, in May to be exact, stories began circulating in U.S. media that Russia was willing to trade Victor Boot for Brittany Griner. And I know we talked about that on this show back then. Just as a refresher, Victor Boot was apprehended in Bangkok, Thailand in 2008 following a sting by U.S. federal agents. He was charged with conspiracy to deliver weapons to a group regarded as a terrorist organization by the United States. In 2010, Bout was extradited to the U.S., and he's been in a U.S. prison since then. U.S. basketball player Brittany Griner was arrested in Russia over suspicions of drug smuggling. She's a two-time world champion and two-time Olympic champion. And before the arrest, she played for Yekaterinburg's, mm, I know I butchered that, but I tried, UGMK, which is a team, a basketball team in Russia. Just the month before that possible swap that Russia offered that was being reported, in April, while the U.S.-EU-NATO proxy war in Ukraine was in full swing, the U.S. and Russia actually completed another prisoner swap, despite the deteriorating relations between the two nations. Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine, who the U.S. says was wrongfully detained in Russia for almost three years, was exchanged for Konstantin Yaroshenko, a Russian pilot convicted of drug trafficking. Yahoo Sports, of all outlets, reported back in May, however, that a one-for-one exchange for Griner for Boot could be especially unpalatable for the U.S. if Russia insisted on Boot in return, which, of course, they did. It was their idea, because Boot is a far more notorious figure than Yaroshenko, since it was Victor Boot that inspired Nicolas Cage's character in the 2005 movie Lord of War. Former top Pentagon official Evelyn Farkas, who is also the executive director of the McCain Institute. Oh, how ironic is that, since it was John McCain who was one of the co-conspirators who cooked up this mess in Ukraine in the first place. Well, she is quoted in that article in Yahoo Sports saying that she hopes the Biden administration explores all options to get Griner and Wheeler home, but... She pointed out that there is a downside to prisoner exchanges. She said, quote, this is the kind of situation that we want to avoid because the Russians will continue to seize Americans as trade bait if we agree to such swaps, end quote. Well, it seems to me that the U.S. has seized a few Russians, too. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been anyone to consider trading for U.S. prisoners in Russia, right? But the reason I'm even bringing this up now is that the U.S. media is now floating the story that it is the U.S. that is offering Victor Boot to Russia as a trade for Griner, as if Blinken and Biden were the ones who came up with the idea. 
Now, I'm not surprised that the U.S. government and the media are lying about this situation. It was clear to me back in May that Biden and Blinken didn't want to trade boot for Griner and Whelan because they said absolutely nothing about the possibility of such a trade happening. They literally wanted it to go away, but it didn't. And now, to save face for ignoring the situation, the White House, the State Department, and their scribes in the U.S. media are floating the lie that the very same deal that Russia's TASS news agency reported also back in May was the subject of talks that were underway between Russia and the U.S. and that the process for preparing for such an exchange had already started. Well, now, according to the U.S. media, that was really the brainchild of the U.S., and it's being offered to Russia now. Yesterday's New York Times Ukraine briefing declared that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said that the United States had, quote, put a substantial proposal on the table weeks ago, end quote, in talks with Russia to secure the release of Griner and Whelan and someone else who is identified in the article as simply someone who was briefed on the negotiations said that in June, the United States offered to trade Victor Boot for Griner and Whelan and that President Biden, who has been undergoing growing political pressure to free the Americans, that part is true, had backed the offer. Blinken said that the United States and Russia had communicated repeatedly and directly on that proposal and that he expected to raise it soon directly with Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Blinken wouldn't provide further details or talk about the Russian response, saying that he did not want to endanger sensitive negotiations with Moscow. But really, how much more could he say without giving away that it was Russia who offered this deal to the U.S. back in May in the first place, and Biden and Blinken just didn't want to agree to it until they were forced to? The Biden administration is sitting on top of a country entering a recession that they're actually trying to redefine. But people know when they can't afford now the gas, food, and other clothes and housing that they used to be able to just scrape by and get. A proxy war in Ukraine that's growing more and more unpopular. A lingering health crisis that is still causing disruptions in the daily lives of Americans as people are still contracting. And yes, some are still dying from COVID. An emerging health crisis in monkeypox that they are just as unprepared to respond to, all pushing them toward the cliff of the midterm elections that they are on track to lose big time if some miracle does not happen for them. So they have to do something that people can feel good about them for, especially since they will not stop this war in Ukraine. They will not stop sending all of our health care, student loan cancellation, affordable housing money to Zelensky. They will not stop their pivot to Asia as Nancy Mama Bear Pelosi is on her way to Taiwan to stir up trouble with China. So for the Democrats, they hope one of those miracles that they need is this deal that the Russians offered the U.S. in May that the State Department is repackaging as theirs. If it brings Brittany Griner and Whelan home, that's fine. But don't for one second believe that Biden and Blinken are agreeing to the deal now because they care about her or anybody else. They care about trying to salvage their party in the midterms. The thing is, I don't think there is any salvaging that can be done at this point. 
Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Dr. Jack Rasmus, an economist, radio show host and author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism. Dr. Rasmus, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Absolutely. And Dr. Rasmus, a lot of headlines being made here as the Federal Reserve and what is reportedly an unprecedented move makes a a second uh, considerable hike rate in uh, about uh, two months in a row, I believe it is now. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, just what this rate hike means and what it tells us about the economic situation in the U.S. right now. Well, the rate hike means uh, you're going to have a slower economy, uh, slower growth, particularly in certain sectors of the economy, uh, housing and uh, goods, uh, big ticket goods, autos and so forth, as the cost of financing that goes up. Uh, the Fed is the solution, the number one choice uh, um, by uh, the policy elites and the government and so forth to uh, deal with the inflation. Uh, there's really no other no other solution being proposed here, even though, uh, you know, they will go around, Biden will go around and say, oh, I'm doing this, I'm releasing more oil, I'm, you know, this and that. that. That's all just PR stuff. They know that the solution they've chosen is to create a recession uh, by raising interest rates. And, and boy, they are raising them very, very quickly here. Uh, so that's the purpose of the Fed raising interest rates right now, to precipitate a recession in order to take out on the backs of uh, consumers uh, the inflation, which is largely caused uh, by global and corporate supply issues. In other words, they're trying to whack household demand uh, as the solution to a problem that really is is a global supply, particularly uh, uh, global supply chains uh, and uh, the sanctions uh, on Russia. Uh, which is exacerbating the global supply chain problem, and uh, corporate uh, monopolistic uh, corporations uh, price gouging uh, behind all this, which they say very little about, you know. Uh, That's the real problem, and it's a global problem. It's a supply problem. Uh, But the Fed is is, uh, taking it out on uh, working class and middle class uh, consumers by whacking demand, raising prices that will result in uh, more unemployment. Uh, You know, the unemployment uh, lags uh, the rest of the economy and policy uh, by about six months. And it takes about six months for all these Fed rate hikes to really have an impact on the economy. So by the end of the year, we're going to see rising uh, layoffs and unemployment here, which will grow progressively until the end of the years. But but, six months from now, it's going to hit real hard. And uh, that's that's the solution, you see. And, And this isn't the first time the Fed has done this. Uh, back in 1981-82, this under Reagan, the same thing happened. Uh, we had uh, a, a global oil supply, energy supply problems. And by the way, the, over half of the inflation is energy uh, and industrial products. Uh, 
and uh, back then, um, you know, Reagan uh, and his uh, central bank uh, chairman there, uh, Paul Volcker, decided they were going to hike interest rates. Uh, and they did to double-digit levels, and boy, did that uh, push the economy into a recession in 81, 82, lots of layoffs, and it brought inflation down. Uh, in other words, they are uh, whacking uh, the demand side, destroying demand uh, for what is really a supply problem. So this isn't new. Capitalist policymakers have done this in the U.S. before. It's interesting to note that other central banks are reluctant uh, to raise rates like the U.S. Uh, Japan won't do it, isn't doing it. Uh, Europe very reluctantly uh, began to raise rates, and I, I predict they won't do too much more, uh, because they know it's a global supply problem, not a domestic demand problem. There's other reasons, too, because of, uh, you know, their currencies and so forth. But, uh, you know, very clearly, people need to understand this is a precipitated recession created by the Federal Reserve, you know, doing uh, what the politicians in both parties want the Federal Reserve to do ever since March, you know, raising rates and now even faster. And the only way you take inflation down, they've decided, is to create a recession. And, and that's exactly what's, what's happening uh, with these rate increases. But you got to understand, it's the global supply chains that have never really healed after COVID. One, it's corporate price gouging, monopolistic corporations, at the lead of which are the oil companies. Uh, and it's uh, the sanctions on Russia, which is exacerbating the global supply, supply problem uh, and, uh, you know, accelerating the cost of, uh, of foodstuff and industrial products and, and, of course, oil and gas. This, this is something that uh, is being created. This isn't by accident. Yeah, and especially since the Biden administration is uh, literally almost trying to redefine what a recession is as the economy does exactly what the Fed is causing the economy to do, uh, to enter into a recession. Uh, technically, the U.S. economy shrank again in the last three months, unofficially sig signaling the start of a recession. I mean, so... And one of the reasons the Biden administration uh, says that we're not in a recession is because so many other parts of the economy are doing so well. I'm not sure what they're talking about, uh, uh, Dr. Rasmus, and I'm wondering if you can explain to people what the Biden administration and even uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jerome Powell, says when he says that the U.S., he doesn't think the U.S. is in a recession. There are just too many areas of the economy that are performing well. Which areas of the economy are they even talking about? Yeah, well, you got to understand what a recession is. What's the definition of recession? Uh, you know, everybody knows that a recession is uh, two consecutive quarters of GDP decline. And we've had that, you know, declined 1.6% in first quarter and now 0.9% uh, 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 this quarter. Actually, it's higher, and I'll explain why. I'm, I mean, the decline is greater, right? Well, that's what they're calling, oh, that's just the technical recession, right? They started out saying, oh, you know, last year, oh, we won't be in a recession. I've been, I predicted we'd be in a recession last December before the end of 2022. But they were saying, oh, no, there'll be no recession. Uh, and then they were saying, oh, you know, it's going to slow down, but uh, 
we'll have a soft landing, they said, right? Uh, and now, of course, we, uh, we have two consecutive quarters, and they said, oh, technical recession doesn't matter. What matters is the, this group of uh, you know, well-positioned uh, mainstream economists who are members of what's called uh, the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the body that declares whether we're in a recession or not in a recession. And they're very conservative about it. They look at not just GDP, but they look at employment levels and retail sales and imports and exports. They look at all these indicators. And it's a, a very subjective uh, kind of decision after the fact, months after the fact, whether we were in a recession or not. Just to give you an example of how ridiculous sometimes the NBER folks uh, can get in defining a recession, uh, let's go back to when COVID hit, right? The first half of 2020. Uh, the first quarter was a contraction of the economy. The second quarter of 2020, April to June, was a big contraction. So we had two huge contractions of the economy, back-to-back, -back, uh, much greater than the contraction in this, you know, this first half of this year. Uh, but the uh, NBER economist said, Oh, we only had a recession for two months in April and May. You see, it's an oxymoron definition they use. They say uh, a recession only occurs so long as the economy continues to contract month to month, quarter to quarter. Once it stops contracting, oh, the recession is over. You could have the economy collapse 10% and then recover one of that, 1% of that, and they say the recession is over. The recession isn't over until you gain back what you lost, right? I mean, that's the, the sensible way of saying it, but that's not how they define it. They define it once it stops collapsing, even though it may take you a year or two years to get back what you lost, right? Then it's over. So you got two consecutive quarters in 2020, big ones, big contractions. Oh, but it was over because it stopped contracting uh, in June of 2020. That's nonsense. Uh, that's an oxymoron kind of uh, definition. Well, that's the way the NBER defines it. And they have no quantitative formula for saying, oh, you know, this indicator, that indicator collapsed so much and so much, and now that means, uh, you know, we're in uh, a recession period. Un unlike the technical recession we're talking about now, with two consecutive quarters, you know, that's a number, right? Well, the NBER doesn't have a number. They just get you know, a good feeling. That, oh, well, we think, uh, you know, employment fell enough and so forth. And to your last point, uh, yeah, uh, the Federal Reserve chairman yesterday in announcing his, his, his latest increase said, we don't think we're in a recession because the job market is so strong. And he points to some indicators, you know, well, the jobs and the job market lags the rest of the economy by six months at least, you know, and you, so you're going to see these numbers here in, in unemployment here within six months. Well, he ignore, he's ignoring that, and so is Biden. And they're saying, well, you know, the, the job market is still strong, which I don't believe, but they point, they cherry pick uh, certain indicators, you know, like what's called the U3 unemployment rate, which is just for full-time workers unemployment. Uh, all the part-time and gig workers and temp workers aren't included in that U3, and that's really still around seven or 8% 
unemployment when you count all the part-time uh, workers. So they only point to the very – they cherry-pick the, the, the indicator, the data they want, and they think the job market is strong. I don't think it's so strong. And uh, we see unemployment claims beginning to creep up already. So that's the basis of, of how they say, oh, it's not a recession. Oh, a technical recession, GDP two quarters, uh, poo-poo that. You know, we just think the job market is strong enough that we're not really in recession yet. And we'll wait on the NBER, mainstream economist, uh, uh, to dictate this later in the year. But you can't expect them to admit uh, that we're in a recession, right? The policymakers right before uh, an election aren't going to say, yeah, we're screwed up, we're in a recession. Uh, and you can't expect uh, the Fed chairman to say that because if, the, if these policymakers, you know, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, or Jerome Powell, Powell, chairman of the Fed, say that, it has an impact. Uh, it worsens the situation, especially the financial markets. You know, they... they you know, they, they go apoplectic. Uh, so uh, can't expect them not to give it the positive spin that they're giving it, policymakers, uh, including the Fed. Uh, but we are in a recession, no doubt about it, uh, very much so. Uh, and it's going to get worse. Yeah. And, you know, while the people in leadership, you know, Biden and uh, Powell, you know, sort of play fast and loose trying to put some kind of uh, positive spin or facade on this thing. I mean, it seems obvious, Dr. Rasmus, that there's going to be a, a pretty serious social fallout from uh, this worsening economic situation here in the United States. And the fact that the only solutions that we seem to see at this point is another rate hike. Uh, Powell thinks we have to maintain a certain level of employment over a certain number of years. I mean, we don't really actually see any positive policies or ideas being put forth that will actually address the material conditions of people here in the United States. And as such, it just seems that the uh, sort of social fabric issue we're having in, in this country right now uh, probably stands to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, well, you know, if you listen to Powell yesterday, uh, he pretty much doesn't know where the hell the economy is going right now. You see, the Fed used to have this this practice they called uh, forward guidance. Uh, they would announce uh, their d this decision, and then they would say, uh, well, we think in the next six months, this is where the economy is going and where uh, we might uh, go with interest rates. That was called forward guidance. Well, he said yesterday, uh, we can't give you any forward guidance we're suspending that whole thing, which really means he doesn't know what the hell the economy is in and where the hell it's going. He knows there's a lot of inflation, but he doesn't know whether inflation is going to continue at double digit levels, which it is, um, or whether it's going to abate or whether uh, rec recession is going to hit uh, even more dramatically in the next few months or there'll be a soft. He doesn't know. So that's why he said no forward guidance. Uh, I, I should add this point, too. Uh, even the GDP numbers that have come out first and second quarter are underestimated. Why is that? Because back in 2013, uh, the government simply redefined GDP. Uh, they threw in about $500 billion a quarter of uh, things they never counted as economic growth, you know, like intellectual property. Uh, which it's almost impossible to estimate the value of, company logos, <laughs> things like that. 
that uh, they say, oh, that's part of GDP or R&D uh, spending, which used to be an expense, not a, not a, a GDP growth uh, figure. They defined it away. And they do this a lot, you know, uh, like uh, Clinton, uh, he d simply defined away a lot of the poverty uh, or they defined away, uh, d define away uh, how many people are uninsured without insurance, health insurance. You know, when it gets real bad uh, and it's blatant and it's obvious, they, they change the definition. Well, that's what they did in 2013. And they took out a big chunk of 500 billion. Well, they added 500 billion. Uh, so if you take the 500 billion, which is more now, uh, out of GDP, uh, the declines here of uh, minus 1.6% first quarter and 0.9% uh, second quarter are even deeper. We're well into 2 to 2.5% two each quarter decline. If you uh, adjust it for the redefinition that, that they uh, uh, they engaged in. You know, the truth is always in the details here. Uh, and uh, you don't get the details in, in the mainstream media of what's actually going on. But we've uh, in the second quarter, even though the total GDP is less than the 1.6%, uh, what's really uh, worrisome is that business investment and government uh, and housing are worse in the second quarter than they were in the first there were some offsetting things that make it look not as serious as the first quarter, you know, 0.9%. Uh, but underneath it, you see a, a, a deterioration of business spending uh, and a deterioration of government spending. Uh, that's not good going forward. Not at all. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Rasmus, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there, but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about U.S.-China relations concerning the issue of Taiwan. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by K.J. No, a scholar, educator and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. He's also a member of Veterans for Peace and senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. K.J., thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. And uh, KJ, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has uh, publicly been uh, sort of mulling the idea of taking a visit to Taiwan, something that has not only prompted a response from China, but even some elements uh, within U.S. politics. I mean, there's even a, a, a New York Times uh, opinion piece that would call such a trip a, a dangerous gamble. And I was hoping you could help us understand, you know, uh, well, First of all, what do we know about, you know, Pelosi's motivations for even wanting to visit Taiwan? What would be the implications of this visit uh, uh, in terms of, you know, Beijing's relationship with Washington? Well, uh, Pelosi's motivations, I cannot really, um, you know, speculate about. It's hard to read. But we do know that 
from the 1990s onward, Nancy Pelosi has been a stalwart member of what we refer to as the blue team. And these are the China bashers. They call themselves the panda sluggers. They are vehemently opposed to any good relations with China. And they have been militating for confrontation with China since uh, the 1990s. Pelosi belongs to that. When she traveled to Beijing in 1991, she pulled off a like a frat jock stunt in front of Tiananmen Square, which got a lot of U.S. journalists uh, into trouble. And uh, foreign policy has just come out with uh, an article uh, denouncing uh, Nancy Pelosi's pranks at that time. And again, like the New York Times, suggesting that this is a very inadvisable move. So what is she looking for? Uh, I think it's a political stunt. Uh, I think that she does not realize uh, that she is potentially setting the grounds for World War III. I mean, simply, she could stay home, do a Zoom call, avoid a 12-hour trip, and eat ice cream from her luxury freezer, or she can create the conditions for World War III. What are the implications uh, geopolitically? Um, the fact is that you, the United States has been salami slicing the one China uh, principle. And uh, the, the key thing to understand is that both Taiwan and the People's Republic of China agree that there is only one China. And they both agree that Taiwan Island is a province of China. Those are the bare facts. And in 1979, starting in 1972, but over the three communiques, the United States acknowledged that the People's Republic of China was the sole legitimate government of China. So therefore, you have it. Uh, PRC is the legitimate government of China, and Taiwan is a province of the People's Republic of China. By militarizing it, and now by engaging it on a high official level, the United States is signaling that the one China policy is over. In other words, they are supporting secession. And if you support secession, there is no sovereign country in the world that would not see that as a declaration of hostilities. And Nancy Pelosi's trip over or uh, threatened trip over to, to Taiwan uh, could be that exact trigger for hostilities to escalate into potential kinetic war. And, you know, KJ, I think when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, especially um, in regard to Russia and China, we always, I think, are hoping for uh, the leaders of those countries to be far more diplomatic than the leaders of the United States, because clearly that has been the case uh, uh, in recent history, uh, certainly. But, but how do you think China would respond if Nancy Pelosi goes through with this trip, because for her to carry this trip out, she would have to violate a Chinese sovereignty. And, and what would China's response be to that? Um, well, you know, you're absolutely correct. She would be violating Chinese sovereignty. And what she would need in order to carry this trip out, well, 
you know, currently the Pentagon has said that she would need some kind of an armed escort. Now, any time you need an armed escort, an armada of aircraft carriers or jet planes, that is not a good idea, especially if it serves no good purpose unless you are actually looking for war. What would the Chinese response be? I have said, uh, you know, since the first Chinese statement, and the Chinese have issued six warnings, not one, not two, they've issued six warnings, and they have made it pretty clear that their military, military response is definitely in the cards. Uh, the Chinese have said uh, that, quote, unquote, they would not uh, sit back uh, with folded arms. They will not sit idly by. Uh, and this is language that you have to understand uh, Chinese messaging. It's like saying we won't take it lying down. In other words, it means they will stand up and fight. So Chinese military said they will not uh, sit idly by uh, and strong measures will be taken uh, uh, they will take charge of the issue. And this is exactly the same kind of language that China used when it tried to warn the United States not to get involved in the Korean War and cross the 38th parallel. At the time, the United States thought that the Chinese were insane and that there's no way that they would commit to uh, a conflict with the United States. They were completely wrong. The Chinese hammered the United States uh, and gave them the greatest military defeat in the history of the U.S. military, and in fact, one of the greatest uh, battlefield defeats in, in the 20th century. But right now, it's like this. Uh, the Chinese are tapping a nail. These messages, these six messages, are like tapping the nail. And if you don't listen to those taps, then what follows is uh, strong blows to drive the nail into the wall. And I am very, very concerned. In fact, I'm losing sleep over the fact that we are very, very close to genetic engagement with China. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty frustrating and honestly uh, kind of gross that, you know, this individual, Nancy Pelosi, would risk that kind of conflagration for, you know, motivations that seem murky at best. I mean, I tend to agree with you, KJ, that it really feels like she's just uh, uh, going for a stunt and, and being um, criticized and warned about it on both sides. And so, you know, we, we don't know, uh, of course, how this will play out quite at this moment. But I mean, it does, I think. Uh, bring us back to this issue of the U.S., um, you know, violating these treaties and these international agreements and things like that. I mean, even just earlier this year when we had this issue of the U.S. and its military support for Taiwan, when asked about the one China rule, I mean, President Joe Biden basically said that, you know, the U.S. honors the one China rule, but also, no, we don't. You know what I mean? Basically reserving the right to uh, for the U.S. government to intervene in case China, quote unquote, 
quote-unquote invades Taiwan, which, as I always say, you know, China can't invade Taiwan any more than the U.S. could invade Wisconsin. You know what I mean? But but I feel like uh, a lot of this is sort of caught up in the way that the U.S. Uh, uh, violates these kinds of agreements, not just the one-China rule, but any number of uh, uh, similar pieces that we could point to across the world in uh, uh, similar circumstances. You know what I mean? And so I think it just shows what happens, KJ, when you have a situation where, you know, parties are engaged in diplomacy, but one side is not not acting in good faith, not acting honestly, is obviously sort of operating chiefly based on sort of um, their own interest. And really, those interests are not even the interest of the American people. It's the interest of, you know, a very small uh, number of wealthy people who actually benefit from these forever wars. And so I'm just wondering how you see uh, uh, this this international agreement piece and the U.S. basically just, you know, casting it aside uh, uh, when it feels like it and how that impacts tensions between the U.S. and China. Well, I mean, Sergei Lavrov said, and I think highly correctly, that the U.S. is not agreement capable. I mean, we see this all the way throughout its histories. What, uh, 380 treaties uh, violated with all the indigenous uh, nations of the United States, not one of them upheld. After the Korean War, the United States said that it would seek a peace and withdraw its troops. There are still tens of thousands of troops in South Korea, whereas all Chinese troops were rapidly removed. Uh, Think of the JCPOA and even the relations with Taiwan. Uh, After the U.S. opened relations, normalized relations with China, they were supposed to demilitarize Taiwan and uh, and stop sending weapons. They have done none of that. They continue to send weapons. Most recently, another batch, 180 million of you know high-tech weapons, and they are now training people. Uh, they are sending trainers to train uh, you know the military in Taiwan. So yes, the U.S. is not a good faith interlocutor with other countries, certainly not countries with which it has an antagonistic relationship. And that is certainly not helped by the fact that the U.S. is either schizophrenic or discoordinated or playing good cop, bad cop with its one China policy. That is to say that Biden says that three times that he's going to defend Taiwan militarily, and then each time it has to be walked back. And then Pelosi says that she's going to violate the one China policy. And then Biden makes some, you know, offhand remark that it's not a good idea now to do that. Uh, So this kind of discoordination or miscommunication or good cop, bad cop schizophrenia sends the message to the rest of the world and certainly to China that regardless of what they say, they are not good, safe, reliable interlocutors with whom they can have a reasonable discussion and negotiation. And that is very, very dangerous. When diplomacy breaks down, uh, you know, the next thing, as I say, is kinetic engagement. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Sergey Lavrov a moment ago, and I've heard it said, KJ, that, you know, what the U.S. is uh, uh, with its support uh, and how it's 
sort of operating and maneuvering uh, vis-a-vis this, this proxy war with Russia in Ukraine, and that it very well may have similar designs on Taiwan in terms of China. And also, if we look at the war in Ukraine, I mean, that same threat of uh, a nuclear war is absolutely a, a very present danger. You know what I mean? And so it, it seems as though we see U.S. imperialism sort of engaging in similar tactics in, in similar, or excuse Excuse me, in, in different parts of the globe, seemingly out of a, a desire to remain in control and try to keep a U.S. world hegemony in peace, even at even as it appears to be uh, in a moment of contraction and even decline, uh, depending on who you ask. You know what I mean? And so, you know, for me, KJ, I just feel like it's wild how, you know, uh, literally the fate of humanity is uh, really being toyed with uh, because of an empire that knows it's on uh, the downturn and doesn't seem to care about the human consequences that will result from these actions. You know what I mean? I absolutely agree with you. I think the ruling imperial elite uh, see uh, the the writing on the wall. They see their global, uh, you know, designs for unipolar hegemony uh, dwindling. And as they see that happening, they are committed to continuing it by any means necessary by toying with the fate of humanity. And they would rather see the end of the world than the end of their total control. And that is very, very dangerous. Regarding nuclear war, yes, I believe that this could trigger nuclear war. Uh, The simple fact is that China does not have a first strike policy. In fact, it was the first country to declare no first strike. It detaches its warheads from the missiles, and it has no hair trigger alert. But all of these things could change. And as in Ukraine, I think the United States is working from a similar playbook. That is to say, Elbridge Colby, who wrote the National Defense Strategy uh, in 2018, believes that Taiwan is the fundamental war. This is the trigger war that is necessary. He, He says that the U.S. cannot compete with China economically. It cannot even win a Cold War through an arms race. And therefore, he believes that it is necessary to trigger a kinetic war. And that kinetic war will happen over Taiwan. Now, the question is timing. The timing right now is uh, uh, um, next Monday is the anniversary of the People's Liberation Army. uh, And in a few months, the Chinese Uh, The the party will gather for their 20th Congress, uh, in which uh, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, leadership will be affirmed and uh, most likely continued. And so these are very, very, you know, kind of politically charged moments to instigate a provocation. And along with that, you know, from China's standpoint, they see what the United States did in Ukraine, in that it armed Ukraine for eight years in order to prepare for war. And so there have to be leaders in China which are asking, you know, uh, our long-term plan is simply to, you know, uh, reabsorb uh, uh, Taiwan province peacefully. But if the U.S. is arming it and preparing it for war, as it has been, uh, as it did with Ukraine, and as it clearly is doing right now, uh, while undermining the one-China policy, then is it, uh, is it prudent for us to keep waiting and to keep holding out 
for the possibility of peace. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, KJ, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the anniversary of the Korean War armistice. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jia Hong from the group Nodutong for Korean Community Development. Jia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Jia, uh, July 27th, 1953 marks the day that the U.S., China and North Korea signed an armistice, uh, which created a ceasefire during the Korean War. But this is, uh, in fact, an armistice and not a peace treaty. And so technically, the Korean War continues to this day, which has had, uh, I think, serious impacts on people on the Korean Peninsula. So I was hoping you could begin by sort of breaking down not only the the history of the armistice, but how it continues to impact people on the peninsula today. Yeah, so July 27th is an incredibly important day for Koreans. Um, you know, we know it as 727 every year. I think the fact that the armistice was signed um, and the peace treaty was never agreed upon, you know, if I could get a little bit more into what that looked like. Um, so the armistice called for a lot of different things. Right? It was called for a withdrawal of all foreign troops within, I think, a few months or something like that. It called for a peace conference within a few months to discuss, you know, again, removing foreign troops and uh, deciding a peaceful settlement. But all of these things never really came to fruition. Um, in fact, what ha- ended up happening was that um, just two months after the signing of the armistice, U.S. and South Korea decided on what's called the Mutual Defense Treaty, which created a basis for U.S. troops to in- indefinitely occupy Korea. And so that continues to this day where there are almost 30,000 U.S. troops in South Korea. Um, so this occupation, you know, I know the U.S. occupies a lot of other countries, but for Korea specifically, um, everything you see with U.S.-Korea relations is a continuation of the Korean War that, you know, is still ongoing. Uh, I think another thing to discuss is this peaceful settlement. It was supposed to happen within three months of the armistice. Uh, the discussions or negotiations didn't even occur until the following year, uh, almost a year later. And when we say that, you know, the peace settlement was never able to be agreed upon, this is technically true, but we have to kind of dig into the details. And then we see that, you know, the U.S. was really never in these peace negotiations in good faith. Um, There was the Geneva Conference in 1954, where the U.S. representative, John Foster Dulles, he 
didn't even shake the Chinese foreign minister's hand. He kind of refused to shake his hand. And he was, you know, very uh, detail-oriented about the seating arrangements. He wanted to, like, look over the North Koreans. Um, and the U.S. and South Korean proposal called for only a withdrawal of Chinese troops, um, only elections in the North supervised by the U.N., which at the time was you know, the U.S. and its allies. And uh, uh, in the meantime, the North Korean proposal included peninsula-wide elections, uh, foreign troops, all foreign troops to withdraw. So, you know, when we say these peace agreements were never agreed upon, we have to look at the fact that the U.S. was really not in it in good faith. So these, you know, the all these details, like, the fact that the U.S. military continues to occupy South Korea, continues to sanction North Korea, uh, all of these happenings that are, you know, ongoing, we have to look at it from the angle of a continued Korean war uh, that is not ended. And, you know, there's a lot of risk for escalation as well. Yeah, definitely. And the fact that this is an ongoing war, you know, explains how the U.S. is able to impose, continue to impose sanctions on the DPRK. But how do those sanctions affect Korean people as a whole? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, You know, the U.S. has imposed so many sanctions on North Korea. And you're right that it's really, you know, on the basis of this ongoing war, because sanctions against North Korea have been levied since 1950, since the start of the war. Um, And, you know, everything is banned um, from dental equipment, x-ray machines, metal pipes, paper clips. I think there was one sanction that said, you know, anything with metal basically is banned. And if you think about what in your house has metal, you know, uh, everything you need, you know, includes metal. So the the sanctions are all encompassing and they have really devastating effects. Um, it's an estimated 10 million people or roughly 40% of the population is food insecure. And a lot of this is attributed to the lack of modern agricultural equipment. So, you know, There is not a lot of uh, farming equipment that allows for mass production, and this causes a lot of food insecurity. Um, And the the other thing is that there are some exceptions for humanitarian aid, you know, but this really is not enough. Um, There's still a lot of delays and shortages. And even if there weren't, you know, humanitarian aid is not going to solve the problem in itself. Um, Just in 2018, Uh, Based on delays and shortages, there were nearly 4,000 deaths uh, in North Korea, and 80% of these were children less than five years old. So, you know, the humanitarian effects of sanctions on North Korean people is really devastating. Uh, But in addition to that, we have to take a look at kind of the lack of trade between North Korea and South Korea. Um, You know, this is one country, historically, South Korea has been more of the breadbasket, and North Korea has not had that agricultural land. So when you sanction uh, one part of the country, essentially there's this food insecurity because, uh, you know, there's supposed to be trade happening between the two sides of Korea. Um, And when that doesn't exist, that also adds to the food insecurity. So these sanctions are, 
you know, really devastating on the North Korean people. But we also have to see that South Korean people are, you know, take a look at what South Korean people maybe uh, not are exposed to because of the lack of trade. You know, North Korea has been able to uh, develop a lot of things based on, you know, the resources that they do have. Um, and the lack of trade is going to kind of continue the war, continue this uh, environment of division. And that is also affecting South Koreans as well. Yeah. And I'm also curious, Gia, about the the posture or the orientation of the Yoon Suk-yeol uh, administration in South Korea towards the issue of reunification and peace. I mean, what what is his uh, stance on that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, Yoon is this uh, new president, uh, right-wing president after years of a liberal president. And uh, Yoon has, and Biden for that matter, have you know publicly said that they're open to peaceful and diplomatic re- resolutions with North Korea. But then you have to take a look at, you know, what their actions or what else they've said. Um, and even during his campaign, Yoon publicly promoted uh, military measures against North Korea. He even talked at one point about preemptively striking North Korea. And one of the big issues of, of peace or of reunification is, you know, scaling down each other's military presence. And one issue is that uh, under Yoon, the U.S. and South Korea have agreed to resume their joint military exercises. And this is happening in just a few weeks. Um, and they will, I believe, in a joint statement with Biden, they agreed to expand the scope and scale of the military exercises. These are military exercises that have historically involved up to 300,000 soldiers. And they, they rehearse invasions of North Korea, including decapitation exercises for North Korean leadership. So these are very threatening war exercises. These are, even though they may claim to want peaceful dialogue, these wartime exercises, these war exercises say otherwise. And, you know, the Biden administration has previously claimed that the drills are defensive, but considering that the U.S. military is in, you know, an occupied country, this cannot really be defensive. So pushing for these war drills to happen is really harming any peace or dialogue reunification process. Um, So that's happening in just a few weeks. And uh, we have to be on the lookout for, you know, what's going what's going to be the North Korean response. Yeah, and we see how, you know, the unofficial end to the Korean War fits into the ongoing U.S. hostilities against the DPRK. But how has that, you know, these hostilities against the DPRK, how has that affected the people of South Korea? Because I think we don't we don't consider that the people of South Korea are actually affected by what the U.S. Uh, continues to do in its aggression and provocation toward uh North Korea or the DPRK? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question because I think sometimes we tend to see, you know, war as one thing and the reunification efforts as one thing, but and U.S. forces in South Korea is yet another, but actually all of these topics are kind of one and the same. And South Koreans are affected on a daily basis by U.S. occupation, right? So the U.S. military has a a giant uh, force and a base in uh, Pyeongtaek, and 
this base is created uh, kind of an environment where the local residents are being impacted by the presence of U.S. soldiers. You know, U.S. soldiers don't uh, really face persecution in South Korea if they commit any kind of crime. Um, and this has historically impacted many, many South Koreans where um, I think recently, even recently, a U.S. force, a uh, U.S. troop person, um, I think, was involved in an assault against a South Korean and nothing happened, right? So this is just one small example of uh, kind of the ongoing legacy of what happens when there's uh, U.S. forces in a country where they're not accountable to the Korean people. Um, I think another example is the THAAD uh, missile defense system in Sozongni. The This is a small rural village that has a lot of elderly residents. And every week, the U.S. forces bring in more equipment to the Sozongni village. And this is protested by these elderly villagers and their supporters on a weekly basis. And in the meantime, the protests get very violent at times because uh, the South Korean police will defend the U.S. forces, you know, bringing in their equipment. Um, and so you see this kind of dynamic week by week um, where South Koreans are being affected by the increased militarization of the U.S. military on the Korean land, on South Korean land, and people's villages are being changed, people's environments are being changed, um, and you also see that in the meantime, there, the media that is being um, pumped into South Korea is like, you know, is very similar to how it is in the U.S., where North Korea is painted as the aggressor. Um, so these things kind of don't align, and South Korea is, I think, looking for, you know, a future that is more a self-determined future. Um, and so, yeah, I think South Korea is definitely affected by this ongoing war by the U.S. military troops on its land, and I think we have to we have to fight for U.S. troops out of Korea. And we have to fight for uh, a future with self determination. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Gia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, July 28th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a call at 202-521-1320. That's 2 Zero two five two one one three two zero. Our operators are standing by 
You can also check the show out on SputnikNews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also download our show on Sputnik.mave.digital. That's Sputnik.mave.digital. And as always, you can check us out live on Rumble, Rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live, but wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do, and we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Richard Becker, author of Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire. Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks very much, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, Richard, I don't know if you saw this, but this week there were thousands of protesters in uh, the city of Baghdad that stormed the Iraqi parliament. And reportedly, these were supporters of Muqtada al-Sadr, who they were um, uh, supporting to be prime minister of Iraq. And they're opposing the nomination of Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. And I feel like there will be more things that will be following from this as uh, things continue to develop. And I believe Iraq has uh, been having issues for a while in terms of how uh, the government operates. But I mean, what I keep thinking about even in reading this, Richard, is sort of the role that the U.S. has played historically in the destabilization of countries like Iraq. Certainly, uh, we know about the the ravages of the Iraq war and uh, things like this. And just, you know, the serious devastating impact that U.S. imperialism has on the people's lands, resources and governments of these countries for years and years and years. And so I'm wondering how you see this history of U.S. interference, this imperialist uh, sort of intervention, if you will, in countries like Iraq and how it can make it so difficult for them to have, you know, sometimes even the most basic of operations of government because of uh, so many of the inherent contradictions. Well, you know, it's it's a very important question. It's a big question. And it's a question that isn't asked often enough. And you know, this past July 14th, so what is that, a couple of weeks, two weeks ago today, um, was the, uh, the uh, 64th anniversary of the Iraqi Revolution, where a revolution that's largely forgotten in, in uh, contemporary times. Um, by coincidence, it was uh, also the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille. But the revolution that took place in Iraq brought in a new government. It was headed by a progressive uh, and leftist nationalist elements in the, in the military. And there was a, a large communist party in Iraq at that time. And in their first constitution, they uh, they set out, they, they called it the constitution of the of two peoples, of the Arab people and the Kurdish people. And at that time, Iraq was a country that had a large Kurdish minority. Uh, it had uh, the majority of the population was Shia Arab. Uh, there was also the Sunni Arabs. There were Christians. There was a Jewish community that had been diminished because of the rise of Israel. But uh, it was a diverse country that had as its aspiration to unify the people of that country and to unify Iraq with the other peoples of the predominantly Arab world, of the Middle East, the Levant, and, and uh, North Africa. And that was, a, you know, to, to, use, to be able to use the resources 
of Iraq and of the whole Arab world for the benefit of the people, not for the benefit of the colonizers who had, who had been just draining the country for decades and longer. And the, the role of the United States and the CIA, uh, along with British intelligence, we shouldn't leave them out in French intelligence, but mainly the United States, their aim was to find the ways to divide the people of Iraq against each other and divide the peoples of the whole region against each other with the aim of maintaining Western domination, imperialist domination of the oil and other and labor and other resources of the whole region. That's a way, you know, there was a uh, late historian, a writer, journalist, Bill Bloom, William Bloom from, uh, from D.C., who wrote a book one time called Killing Hope saying that's really what U.S. foreign policy had been since World War II was killing hope, killing the hope that people had to be able to emerge, those who lived under colonial domination, and to be able to reorder society, reorganize it, so that the the great resources could be used for the people. And it was not only in, in, the, uh, in the Arab world, but in Latin America and Asia. This is really... If you wanted to really summarize U.S. foreign policy in two words, the way Bill Bloom did it is, is pretty, uh, pretty accurate, killing hope. Yeah, that's a fact. And uh, I'm wondering how you also see that play out in other dynamics in terms of the U.S. with other countries in that region, in that Middle East, West Asia region. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of, you know, countries like Iran. I mean, we see how the United States, I mean, continues to uh, uh, scuttle any real progress as it concerns the JCPOA or the Iran uh, nuclear deal, trying to uh, make Tehran basically out to be the aggressors or the unreasonable ones at this uh, bargaining table when in truth for all this time it's been Washington that has uh, not been operating in good faith and of course you know there's Afghanistan where the U.S. just waged just you know I mean an an incredible, just ridiculous, blood-soaked, really pointless uh, a war for years and years and years and really only stayed, um, at least in my estimation, out of a desire to save face so it won't be perceived to have lost another war similar to uh, what it experienced in Vietnam. I mean, it just seems like we see similar tactics and strategies being used by Washington all throughout this region, Richard, and I, I would say also uh, all over the world, really. And I feel like we see a lot of uh, similar consequences from that in a lot of these countries as well. Well, yeah. And, and you look at Iran and Iran um, had been uh, dominated by the British in the in the uh, in the current you know last couple of centuries, increasingly so uh, in uh, in the early 1900s when Winston Churchill, the infamous uh, imperialist, uh, was in charge of the Admiralty, in charge of the British Navy, he made the decision to switch from coal to oil. And the oil that they're talking about was the oil of Iran, uh, because that's where they knew there was large quantities of oil. They didn't know so much about some of the other oil, huge oil deposits in the region. But the the people live, the people, the oil workers in, in the Abadan province of, of Iran, they lived in shacks. And they might they were paid something that like fifty cents a day for working under extremely 
hot, brutal conditions for much of the year. And that was what ran the British Navy, which, which ran the British Empire. And so you had that. And then in 1951, there was an election, the first democratic uh, government in Iran, and that was the Mossadegh government. And British and U.S. imperialism collaborated together uh, and overthrew that government in 1953 and ushered in 25 years of the Shah and the Sabak police, the secret police, and this extremely brutal regime that tolerated no dissent whatsoever, met dissent with mass torture. Uh, and uh, this was, of course, hugely beneficial to the Shah, but much more hugely beneficial to the U.S. oil companies, the military industrial corporations, and so forth. Uh, and that's that, uh, you, you look at that and you see that's the history. That's a real history of that, you know, now, you know, well, the Iranians are supposed to forget about that. And, you know, now they're the villains again and so forth. And, you know, this is uh, this the policy that the U.S. Is, uh, has implemented against Iran the uh, an international oil boycott, or they've tried to make it international, though it's breaking down a lot. It's broken down and continues to break down. But the... Uh, the uh, that hasn't, they, they've inflicted a lot of suffering on the Iranian people by doing this again, but they're also not succeeding this time around. They, But they're trying to do it. They're trying to use the sanctions again, cause so much suffering that there can be uh, another CIA coup in Iran. But I, as I said, I don't think it can work this time around. It doesn't mean they're not trying. And they're just doing the same thing in a lot of countries and causing great suffering. Uh, it's, they're having more trouble reaching their objectives, but there's no shortage of suffering that's being caused. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of oil, shout out to the uh, by any means necessary chat. Uh, Richard Prester John, too, says we must keep in mind that Iraq's oil has largely been privatized in the aftermath of the U.S. invasion, a smash and grab operation that robbed this nation of its state owned birthright. And, you know, in in my memory, I mean, you've been in uh, the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement a long time, Richard. But one of one of the earliest slogans that I, I can recall, even before. Before I was really politicized was uh, no war for oil, you know, and that uh, that resonated with me, even if I didn't understand a lot of the details and um, dynamics of the war and uh, Iraq itself. It just seemed wrong that all of this uh, uh, killing and war was happening just so the U.S. could have, uh, uh, you know, access to this natural resource. But that was also during a time where, you know, I would say like liberal media outlets, including, you know, comedy shows like uh, The Daily Show, were sort of pointing to this as they tend to do, although they tend not to uh, have that same level of analysis when a Democrat is in office. But I mean, when we talk about this resource exploitation and the role that oil played in the destabilizing of countries like Iraq, Richard, I mean, that seems like a core aspect of things as well in terms of how it, you know, generate profits from this wealthy handful of people who actually uh, profit profit from war. Yeah, you know, the, it's interesting because there were, at the end of World War II, and then before it really ended, in the years leading up to the end, there was uh, the design in Washington, well, how are, what's the world going to look like? How is it going to be a different world? And how are we going to be the dominant, the unquestionable dominant power in the world? And the elements of that were, of the, uh, that made up that strategy were 
to maintain a huge military, uh, to uh, uh, become the center of world finance. And in 1944, there was the Bretton, Hill, Bretton Woods Agreement, and which made the dollar basically the world currency. Uh, and and a, a, a third element of this was domination and control of global essential resources. Uh, and very interesting, in, in 1944, even before the Normandy invasion, I mean, imagine, uh, the U.S. sent a message to all the embassies of the world and said, you should be on, your lo- on the lookout for opportunities for our petroleum companies. Mm. This is in, in January 1944. I mean, it's like amazing. Like, here they are in the war and, and here, you know, help our, our, our companies. So when, the world, world, uh, when world War II was over, that uh, that strategy was in place, and the, there was what was particularly sought uh, after in terms of domination of world resources was oil. So this goes back a long way, uh, and it's not so much oil for use, which is a thing that misled people when you said uh, no blood for oil. Some people thought at that time, and I, I think this is the time of the first Gulf War in, in 1991, that <clears throat> this had something to do with you know, the interest of American people in being able to drive their cars. No, that's not what it was about. It's about domination of oil, control of global resources, and particularly control of global oil, which has been a, a, a really determining and driving motivation of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah, and what you're describing, Richard, I think is why uh, the U.S. has to lie about its motivations for getting involved in these different wars. I mean, you know, in, in the post 9-11 period, um, in that war on terror uh, uh, era, if you will, I mean, we heard a lot about, you know, the U.S. military protecting our freedoms and, you know, about how these other countries, these these like sort of otherized, uh, 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 you know, this orientalist racist way of looking at these countries. It's like this, you know, brown Arab Muslim blob of people that exist in this part of the world that just hate the United States because, you know, it's quote unquote free and democratic and all of that. And so there's just like this incredibly reductive way of thinking about this uh, entire section of the globe and an ancient and important part of it as well. You know what I mean? And so given how things have unfolded in the time since and this whole concept of, you know, humanitarian intervention and just the incredible propaganda that the American people have been subject to, which I would argue continues to this very day as it concerns the the war in Ukraine. I mean, not that long ago, we had people in the United States in the streets advocating for a no fly zone. You know what I mean? And so it, it just feels like uh, uh, the media has and continues to play a central and crucial role in how people in the U.S. and the West think about these different conflicts, think about these different uh, uh, countries and governments, which, of course, is just a part of a broader campaign to justify uh, uh, these forever wars and make people think like they have some stake in them or if it, as if it's something that's going to benefit them. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you know, I mean, if you just take the examples along the line of what you're saying of um, of the, how this plays out, so you have uh, Iran is demonized in the United States. Iran is, uh, 
you know, all there's all kinds of accusations against Iran, and um, and one of them is that they they don't have they they have irregularities in their elections. Yeah, this happens yeah. every time there's an election, especially if the election doesn't go the way Washington's hoping, which is usually the case now. And uh, and but then you look, you know, you don't have to go that far away from there, and there's Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi Arabia, you don't have to worry about election irregularities because they don't have elections. But Saudi Arabia is depicted uh, as, you know, um, it's a friend, friend of the United States. They're about to have their own uh, PGA golf tour for professional golfers. And Trump, one of the uh, one of the first places they're going to play is on Trump's golf course in Florida. And, you know, I mean, it's like so absurd. The, the the way the presentation is made uh, to the people of the United States through the mass media, which is you know a very conscious of what they're doing. Of course, they they really play the role of kind of multiple official state medias rather than just one. But they, uh, the, the, this representation that, and the demonization and the racism um, it has consequences too. I mean in when the Iranian revolution happened and the hostage, there was a hostage crisis, uh, many Iranians were killed in the United States uh, because of the demonization, the extreme demonization of Iran that went out at that time. But it goes on constantly. You know, Israel is presented to us as, you know, a force for good and democracy and all that. And the Palestinians are vilified as terrorists in the, in the U.S. media, even if they don't always overtly say that. You get the idea, just the way languages and, uh, you know, a thousand different ways in which these ideas are transmitted by the mass media to the people of the United States. <clears throat> just the language. I mean, you never, hear an out, you never hear an outbreak of violence. That's not a headline in the United States uh, media if the uh, Israelis, as they often do on any given day, kill Palestinians. Violence is only when the Palestinians fight back. So there's the you know the the language is very deceptive and uh, and it's it's continually um, meant to to mislead the people and again it's no coincidence that that uh, the the presentations are very much uh, fitted to the objectives of U.S. foreign policy of the imperialist foreign policy and we really need a different foreign policy I mean for, if the, if there was a policy uh, foreign policy and I think all we, it would take was a revolution to get there. But a foreign policy, a, re, a different foreign policy of the United States would not be talking about demonizing the people, would not be talking about how we're in this life and death struggle with China over who's going to control the 21st century. I mean, that has no consequence. There's no, the people of the United States have no interest in a, in a, in a global competition with China or with anybody else. What we need is solidarity and friendship and co and cooperation to face the problems of the world. But that's not what we're getting. <laughs> not at all. Well, we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I continue to be joined by Richard Becker. And Richard, we've been talking about the historical and contemporary machinations of U.S. imperialism in the Middle East. And I feel like I have to ask uh, how you're seeing Joe Biden's recent Middle East visit uh, within that context. I mean, he was he was talking real bad here in the U.S., you know, what I'm saying about how he was going to supposedly hold, you know, Ben Salman accountable and all these sorts of things about, you know, Jamal Khashoggi and how he supposedly wasn't uh, uh, begging for oil and all these sorts of things. But I I got to say, you know, looking at it uh, uh, after the fact, it it feels to me like kind of another foreign policy defeat for uh, Joe Biden, because he just didn't really seem to, I mean, achieve much of what it appears he set out to do. And even though this was a trip to the Middle East, I feel like domestic issues are a large part of what um, was driving his thinking in terms of how, you know, prices for fuel and seemingly everything else is steadily rising here in the United States with the Biden administration sort of uh, pointing the finger of blame squarely at uh, Vladimir Putin and the war in Ukraine. But I mean, how do you sort of see this uh, this Biden Middle East trip and, you know, of course, the the uh, this now uh, famous photo of him, a uh, fist bumping Ben Salman, the same person he said that he was going to make a pariah. And I mean, what do you think it means both about U.S. foreign policy at this point and the state of uh, imperialism's development? Well, I think it was uh, I think it was a big defeat for uh, for Biden, the, the trip was, and, and obviously, I mean, anyone who was paying attention at all saw the fist bump and then heard, you know, the, the references, the previous references to who's going to make Mohammed bin Salman a, a pariah. I mean, it just, it looked, it looked ridiculous. And, you know, the, I think the thing that was very interesting that happened was that, and at the same time, there was a meeting in Tehran. Uh, that went on over three days and involved different parties to it, but the main parties in it were uh, were Russia and Turkey and and Iran, and uh, and what I think for anyone who was really looking at it and thinking, well, what's really happened here? I mean, that they they were going to isolate Russia and Russia was going to bring down the economy of Russia, and instead, what it appears that they've done is they've vastly uh, led to a vast increase, although it was, you know, the oil monopolies, we don't let them off the hook, but uh, helped to lead to this huge increase in the price of gas and oil and so forth. And at the same time, you have, uh, you know, what uh, Biden did in Israel was really uh, to amplify in many ways what Trump had done, uh, which was to hail the Abraham, so-called Abraham Accords. And the Abraham Accords, we should understand those accords that brought together, you know, where the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and uh, and other countries of the Gulf and Egypt and Morocco uh, stepping up their uh, relations, which have been largely hidden, now more out in the open, uh, with Israel, 
uh, th- this is a confirmation of what the Palestinians have long said, that their struggle is not just against the U.S. and Israel, but also against the reactionary Arab regimes. Uh, that that became clear to everybody in this. And you had Biden saying, oh, we're for a two-state solution. Of course, not in the near term. Not in the near term. I mean, like, what are we talking about? I mean, how long has this been going on? And you're going to say not in the near term? And, you, you know, the uh, <clears throat> the United Arab Emirates is now a friend, a good friend of the U.S. and quote unquote and, and it's amazing and they you know on the very day uh, that Shireen al-Akleh the uh, well-known Palestinian journalist was shot in the face and killed murdered by the by the Israeli um, occupation forces on the same day the United Arab Emirates for the first time had a ceremony in their capital honoring the Israeli war dead in the years over uh, the, the, the the years that have gone by since the establishment of the state of Israel, I mean, unbelievable in in many respects. But you know that's the reality of the situation, and uh, the the Biden, uh, I think, underlined the reality of what that situation is, and that it really is these reactionary regimes like the United Arab Emirates were. 11% of the population are citizens and 89% who do all the work can never be citizens. Another friend of the United States. Wow. And, you know, uh, switching gears uh, a little bit here, uh, Richard, but still sticking with the theme of U.S. imperialism. I mean, today is the 68th birthday of Hugo Chavez, of course, the leader of the uh, uh, Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, who was born on this day in 1954. And I feel like says in the Bolivarian Revolution, of course, currently under the, the care of Nicolas Maduro, who was Chavez's vice president, it's I feel like it's inspiring and instructional in a number of ways. I mean, number one, the fact that Chavez was really only able to come to power and stay in power because he had the support of the masses of the uh, Venezuelan people. And I feel like uh, the 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 Bolivarian government in Venezuela to this day still has that support by and large. And uh, which I think is one of the main thing that sort of protects it in a way from U.S. imperialism, which continues uh, to try to carry out regime change, continues to enact these uh, draconian sanctions, which, you know, just causes just incredible suffering for the same Venezuelan people that the U.S. government uh, claims to care so much about. And here again, we see these similar themes like we were talking about earlier, these claims of uh, despotism and a lack of democracy and all those sorts of things, all because uh, this country wanted to, you know, operate and go through its own sort of a revolutionary socialist project uh, and develop its own ways and means of participatory democracy and things like that. And, you know, a number of other things that put it squarely outside of the uh, interest of Washington. Well, I shouldn't say it put the country outside the interest of Washington. I should say that it wasn't uh, sufficiently uh, syncophantic to Washington. It wasn't really to roll over and basically sell itself to uh, imperialism as past leaders of the country and the region 
had. And uh, I just feel like there's so much to uh, uh, learn, you know, from Chavez's leadership, from the Bolivarian Revolution and, and its or and its it, its mass character, if you will, in terms of how it relates to uh, the rank and file of Venezuelan person that I think not only has a lot to show us in terms of the movement in the U.S., but I think also shows exactly why it continues to be such a target of U.S. imperialism. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we should really salute Hugo Chavez. It's, it, it was a, a really a terrible tragedy that he he left us so soon, uh, and a great tragedy for the people of Venezuela. But the people of Venezuela have not folded and have not given up. The leadership has not and has continued. And I think it's it's uh, indicative uh, that, as you say, all this suffering that this causes has not succeeded, though, in Venezuela or in Cuba or in Iran uh, uh, or in Nicaragua, has not succeeded in bringing down those governments. I mean, we can't say for sure that that won't happen, but it's sure a different world than it was uh, 60, 70 years ago when the U.S. could overthrow the government in Iran and overthrow the government in Guatemala and overthrow the newborn government in the Democratic Republic in Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, Patrice Lumumba, and and other leaders in other countries. Uh, and uh, but the world has changed. The world has changed. Um, those were projects that were relatively short-term projects. The the, the coups, the counter-revolutions that took place. Now we've seen that you know this has gone on for years. The sanctions against Cuba have gone on for more than 60 years for Venezuela, several years, uh, but they, and, and Iran too, for many years, and, uh, but they haven't fallen. So we can see that the world has changed. Um, it's not the same world as it was in the 50s and the 60s when the CIA could, could uh, you know, just rule the roost. They're out there doing a lot of damage. They're in every country. Uh, it's, it's the empire. The military bases are everywhere. The CIA stations are there in every embassy in the world. And they're plotting against everyone who's progressive and socialist and wanting to have a better world for their own peoples. But they're not succeeding right now. It's causing a lot of suffering, but they're not succeeding. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fact. And it's actually pretty incredible when you look at countries like you named, like Venezuela, like Nicaragua, like Cuba. These countries do not have uh, the size, the resources or uh, the power, the geopolitical power of the United States. And yet they're still able to maintain, which I think says a lot, not only about the processes that uh, go on in those countries, which, you know, emerged in their own way, on their own time, under their own circumstances, but as always, uh, uh, that direct involvement, that real buy-in from the people that I think uh, really tends to uh, uh, allow these governments to stay in place and to continue these projects. And even in looking back at our conversation a little earlier around the Middle East, Richard, I, you know, I have kind of a fascination with, uh, you know, movement history and the way that the politics and things, you know, evolve over time. And uh, I want to ask a very broad question, and that's, you know, where do you think the anti-war, anti-imperialist movement should really 
really be directing its energies at this moment when we see this contraction and decline of U.S. imperialism? And while, you know, it doesn't look like it's going to be dislodged tomorrow or even maybe the next day, I do feel like the vulnerabilities of imperialism are starting to show in a way that they haven't before. And so I'm just wondering how you think the movement should be responding to that. Well, I think that uh, on the one hand, uh, we have to be uh, uh, on guard and alert for the developments to take place where there's a need to have rapid mobilization. Um, we've done that in a number of different instances, and I think that sometimes it's uh, it's overlooked the the importance of it. So, for instance, in 2013, there was a worldwide mobilization against the U.S. It looked like the U.S. was going to go into Syria big time in the Obama administration. And at the last minute, everyone shocked they pulled back from doing it. So being ready to take action rapidly when there's a, an emergency situation, I think that's very important. The other thing that I think is very important is for that movement, the anti-war and anti-imperialist movement. You know, in most countries in the world, there's one movement, or in many, many countries. But there's one that has different facets to it. I remember being in Greece. In 1988, it was shortly after the beginning of the Intifada and um, the Palestinian Intifada, and uh, we were waiting to try to take a, a ship to to try to challenge the um, ex- the expulsion of Palestinians from from Palestine by the Israeli government. And while we were waiting, the uh, Greek Communist Party called a demonstration in solidarity with Palestine. And uh, people all came after work, and they were they were they were people who were part of that party, or they were supporters of what the party was doing. But I really got the feeling, and I talked to people there, that they saw that as part of the struggle against uh, against NATO and its domination there. But they also saw it as part of the struggle for housing and uh, decent wages and the rights uh, the rights of the unions and. You know, so in other words, what I'm saying is that I think that the movement, we, we need to conceptualize the movement as being not just an anti-war movement, but of the people's movement, the people's movement for, for justice and, and for a future for, for everyone. That is a movement that can respond uh, to all kinds of challenges, including those in the area of, um, you know, international affairs and foreign policy and so forth. Yeah, I I tend to agree. I tend to agree. And particularly when we talk about this anti-imperialist movement becoming a people's movement. I mean, when we look at just the uh, just gross uh, war budget in the United States that is, you know, tens of billions of dollars more than even Joe Biden asked for, while we're still in a baby formula shortage in the United States, if folks didn't know, along with all the other um, attendant uh, uh, social, uh, political and economic issues that are seemingly, uh, uh, you know, raging on and imploding all at the same time. I mean, it's just clear that there's a direct connection between uh, people's conditions here and war abroad, which I think also speaks to the importance of uh, strengthening our international relationships. Because, um, as you say, Richard, there are different movements around the world that uh, are really sort of uh, facing the
facing the brunt. A lot of these countries are facing the brunt of U.S. imperialism and, of course, are organizing their movements accordingly. So I think being in contact with those movements and uh, uh, coordinating and really building an international people struggle uh, is going to be an important aspect of all of this. I feel like we saw uh, some of what this could look like at the uh, People's Summit for Democracy uh, that was in Los Angeles a little while ago. That was happening at the same time as this, you know, exclusionary, frankly, like not well attended or supported uh, summit of America's that the Biden administration was uh, uh, putting on. And so I think that that event and and the movement in of itself sort of shows that, you know, the imperialists are not invincible. Uh, they can be organized against, they can be fought against, and we just have to have the wherewithal to really struggle against these incredibly powerful forces, because if we dare to struggle, then we dare to win. But we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Richard Becker is here. Uh, we're also joined by, by any means necessary, producer Josh Gomez. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Sean. Absolutely. And Richard, I know you got to go in. Uh, uh, oh, well, no, you don't. OK, cool. Well, anyway, what I was going to ask, uh, I wanted to get deeper into our uh, conversation uh, about the centrality of imperialism in terms of it being a core contradiction, right, within the people's movement. And Josh, I'm wondering your thoughts on this as well, as someone who's uh, an anti-imperialist organizer um, and has been uh, uh, for a while, about how imperialism as a core contradiction is just connected to so many of the other issues facing the rank-and-file person in the U.S. and the world right now. I mean, it's connected to climate change. I would argue it's connected to our overall economic issue here in the United States. Uh, it's connected to the policing issue. Uh, I tend to think that it uh, 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 contributes to and exacerbates just this violent culture that we have uh, uh, in the U.S. And so I'm wondering how you see it as important to connect a lot of these different issues and showing about how they're uh, sort of all shot through and connected to imperialism, which is not something that the people in this country hear a lot at all. A uh, point of fact, you know, I mean, they're told that almost everything else is like the, the root of their issue, except for, you know, the capitalist system out of which emerges imperialism. You know what I mean? Which, as Lennon tells us, is capitalism at the highest stage. Yeah, Sean, that's a great question. You know, it's also uh, an important question. It's also a very big question. There's a lot that's wrapped up in that. And, you know, I think maybe the first thing to to recognize um, 
uh, when we talk about this is that, you know, some guy called Lenin uh, theorized about a century ago that uh, imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. So when we look at what uh, imperialism's uh, effects are on the essentially the rest of our lives we have to remember that it is uh the highest stage of of the system uh overall and with that said um uh i mean, just to backtrack just a, just a bit uh when we you know the reason for saying that is is to to recognize uh, uh that we this is within the system that all of these uh issues like climate change like racist police terror like uh uh even abortion rights uh have a connection to to this system but um to get to get a little bit more onto your point um i think you know personally i think one of the most pressing uh it, it pressing and uh, perhaps the best example of the impact of imperialism on on the world on a much on a broader uh target than just uh the victims of imperialism is the uh, climate change issue and you know the, we i think we're really seeing it in a almost indirect way right now with the way that europe is reacting to the war in ukraine and particularly the uh the energy issues that are going on with uh, russia right now and as a as a i think that russia has now uh or gazprom uh, has limited the the natural gas deliveries to about 20 percent uh, of what they used to be now we have the uh, i believe the european union uh, essentially classifying coal as a renewable energy source or something to that effect is essentially greenwashing what coal is we have the germany uh looking uh, at uh at restarting their nuclear power operations after uh the the green movement in the 90s successfully ended the uh the use of that uh that program of the use of the energy source because of its danger. And then obviously we have the actual emissions that are happening from the war in Ukraine and particularly uh, what uh, is going on with uh, NATO's involvement. Right. Uh, so planes have to put it, you know, have to have emissions to get to Ukraine and, and, and supply these weapons to uh, the front lines. And also uh, a lot of these, uh, you know these tanks, these missiles uh, themselves have emissions that are, are released when uh, when they are used. So I I think it's maybe maybe the most pressing issue right now uh, is understanding uh, how climate change is connected to imperialism. And again, and I think this is maybe one one of, one of the most important things to always be said when we talk about this is that the U.S. military is one of the biggest polluters uh, in the world. And when we also think about that. Uh, in relation to the fact that about 70 companies are responsible or rather 100 companies are responsible for about 70% of emissions, it's, uh, it, it really brings into focus the broader system that's responsible for both uh, imperialism and climate change. Yeah, 800 some odd bases and installations that don't make anyone safer, only protecting uh, the super profits of these war profiteers. And we have a caller on the line here. Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. Um, yeah, I'm just calling in uh, just to say a few things about, or yeah, say a few things about Iran again. I think that's a very like relevant topic now, especially just seeing like how the U.S. operates in the region. And it's something that like I don't know if a lot of people know is like 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 the length of the um, I guess what's now known as the IAEA. Um, agreement that, um, or sorry, the IAEA agency that oversees the agreement that Iran has with the United States. But 
I was very surprised to learn that this is something that's been starting or or started in the nineteen well in nineteen seventy four, what it was called at the time Iran's Comprehensive Safeguards Safeguards Agreement, the CSA. I guess is when they like began to enact these series of things or series of like I guess energy surveillance is what I would call it. Even they admit it in their in, in their agency and like how there have been plenty of times where the U.S. or rather Iran has even complied with the surveillance. And even when the U.S. stepped away recently, which under Trump, they were still doing it. They were still going by the protocol. And so, I don't know, like, I, for me, like, I think this verges on, not verges, but it just seems to be straight out hostility and harassment by a country. And I'm just wondering, like, how has this been able to go on for so many decades? Like, when does this stop? Like, if you have an agreement, don't at some point you fulfill the agreement? It seems like this is going on for the past 40 years. So that is something I wanted to say and sort of ask about. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tamara. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, I mean, the answer to your question, how can it go on so long, is it, because of power. It's because the uh, U.S. imperialism has the power militarily. It has the economic, excuse me, it has the military might with this uh, uh, massive military machine that we've been describing. It has the economic power to uh, uh, do it by, you know, having the dollar be the sort of de facto um, base of uh, foreign exchange and things like this. And so at every level, you see uh, the U.S. and the West uh, uh, abuse that position to uh, attack countries like Iran, which it only is interested in uh, so that it can exploit it. The only reason that the U.S. is interested in really any of these countries is, is it's for, you know, the exploitation or because they help facilitate uh, um, exploitation. You know what I mean? And in terms of what it's going to take to finally overturn it, I mean, I think it's going to take uh, that same kind of international people's movement that we're uh, uh, speaking about. You know what I mean? And, you know, it just just reading about the many horrors of U.S. imperialism over the years. I mean, uh, Richard mentioned uh, the William Bloom piece uh, uh, earlier. You know, many, many books, articles, documentaries, you know, even some movies that show the reality of this and how uh, it is it is an anti-human, anti-life ideology. And we see that play out in stark ways through the process of these forever wars that we see. And another thing that I often think about, uh, Josh, in discussing U.S. imperialism is how, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that so much of this conflict uh, from the U.S. is being directed at countries, you know, from the global south, from countries in, two countries in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and what have you. And it just reminds me of, you know, the inherent racism of U.S. imperialism. I don't think we can ever forget that either about just how important white supremacy is to the program process and system of imperialism, because it's this idea that these black, brown, red and yellow people 
don't have the capacity to govern themselves or they don't know what to do with their own natural resources and things like that. They don't know what democracy is. They don't know how to run a government. They don't know how to build a country. And so they need the great white father, this this Euro-American figure to, uh, you know, swoop in and, quote unquote, save them from themselves, which oftentimes just looks like death, bloodshed and destruction, which I think is another part of the blowback that we see in the U.S. I mean, in the last couple of years, particularly since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, um, we've seen violence aimed at uh, Asian people in this country. And we've maintained on this show that that's directly connected to uh, the ongoing racist new Cold War that the U.S. has with China. That both Trump and Biden engaged in, mind you. Uh, Biden, as we know, uh, advocated, promoted, and fed into this racist uh, Wuhan lab leak conspiracy. All these sorts of things. And so, you know, when we look through the history of not only foreign policy, but imperialism itself, which is not just a, a set of policies, I don't think it's a coincidence that the racism reflected abroad is also reflected for uh, uh, people of color and oppressed people here in the U.S. Oh, of course not, Sean. It's definitely not a coincidence that there's a, you know, as you as you mentioned, as you stated, and as is what we say on the show is that uh, we've seen a whole lot more anti-Asian racism uh, since the 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 start of the U.S. Uh, Cold War drive against China. We've seen that ramp up even more so uh, once the uh, the coronavirus pandemic started. Um, and the reason for this is, is it's pretty clear. I mean, when you have like someone like uh, Xi Jinping or, or another uh, East Asian leader on the cover of Time magazine, basically painted as the devil, um, it's a it's a not not going to do well for your for your people at home who look something like uh, who, who are East Asian, who have a lot of the, the uh, traits that uh, someone like Xi Jinping or another East Asian leader might have. It's it's I mean, it's just part and parcel of the of the of the war drive is, is dehumanizing the targets of imperialism. We saw the same thing happen with uh, Arab Americans and uh, Muslims uh, in the wake of 9-11 and in the uh, conquest, essentially, of Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, where people who even who weren't even Muslim, who uh, were wearing Things like turbans or or, or other uh, South Asian or, or what is what are considered South Asian or, or Middle Eastern uh, garb attacked attacked because of of this demonization of of uh, Muslims and uh, and because of the constant uh, media uh, coverage of uh, of these these scary Muslim that was Osama bin Laden and and the uh, Al Qaeda terrorist group and it's it's it's. It's, it's it's a crucial component of the the war drive because the war drive and the imperial war drive is all about dehumanization. It's about not understanding uh, the the your target as as a victim or as uh, someone who should be sympathized with, but as as uh, a a brute essentially a brute or or as you said uh, as someone who uh, is also to be saved. I, I mean it, it really uh, it depends on the situation. Depends on a lot and like. The specifics of uh, of uh, what the the propaganda effect is trying to achieve, but uh, whether it's uh, presenting the so-called enemy as a brute or as somebody to be uh, saved, it, it, the the effect is all the same. It's dehumanization and it's it's removing the 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 dignity uh, of of the person 
for the for a political purpose, for a political conquest. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you mentioned Xi Jinping in Time Magazine. I mean, he's been on there a couple of times. I'm looking at uh, this one from 2014. They've got like this animated uh, likeness of Xi Jinping, which is pretty accurate. And it says China's leaders, China's leader looms large at home and abroad. Emperor Xi. Right. <laughs> so there's a callback right there. And in 2016, there's uh, there was a story. China's chairman builds a cult of personality. And in the image, it's it's an image of Xi Jinping sort of peeling away like a sticker. And behind him is an image of Mao Zedong. And so raising the specter of this you know, what to the West and the U.S. is like this scary, strong, uh, uh, you know, socialist uh, uh, Chinese force that, you know, according to time is building a cult of personality around himself. I mean, it really is incredible how the stigmatization of leadership is so uh, uh, important to the process of imperial imperial expansion and domination. It's a part of this dehumanization that you're speaking to, Josh. And we've definitely seen that um, aimed at Vladimir Putin, not just since February 24th, but, you know, in the whole of the, I think, 20 years that he's been in power, even during that period where uh, uh, Putin was trying to basically have some kind of appeasement uh, tactic with the U.S. I mean, I think he saw that that didn't work just like the China saw that that appeasement didn't work as well and that the U.S. doesn't really respond to that and that it's ultimately really only interested in uh, carrying through its own plans and designs. And the worst part about that is that that same kind of propaganda like we've been speaking about leaks right down. This is the real trickle down. It trickles right down into the consciousness of the rank and file person in the United States who then start to believe that uh, the enemies of the U.S. government and of the U.S. capitalist state are somehow our enemies, too, even though their issue isn't with us. Right. And they actually say this if, if you act, if you, you know, pay attention, um, you know, to their statements and where they actually aim their ire. They don't talk about, you know, how much they hate the American people or how they want to do harm to the American people or how the American people are to blame for the problems of their country. No, they're very clear that uh, uh, it is the U.S. government and frankly, the U.S. ruling class that is really directing a lot of this. But we have the opposite orientation in the United States where people in the U.S. and certainly the government is more than happy to make the people of a given country suffer because of the, quote unquote, you know, crimes of its leader. You know what I mean? And so this is what uh, we're talking about when we discuss the fundamental inhumanity of imperialism, which is itself an outgrowth of the inhumanity of the capitalist system itself. I mean, when you have a system that believes above all else that the maximization of profit is more valuable even than human life, well, then what we see now is just the logical conclusion of that kind of thinking. So what does that mean? It means then that you and I, as movement people and organizers, have to be a part of an effort to bring about the opposite reality in the U.S. and the world, to place humanity at the center of a society's priorities 
instead of the profits of a few. You know what I mean? And so, you know, there's a reason why we always come back to this point here on By Any Means Necessary. And it's because as things continue to develop, we see the ruling class isn't going to change but we will have to change and organize amongst ourselves to bring about that new society. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We want to thank Richard Becker and Josh Gomez so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with our new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.